0: Welcome to Worldwide Waste, a podcast about how digital is killing the planet and what to do about it. The website Carbon Calculator is a real go-to tool for me when I want to find out how much CO2 a particular web page is creating. This and many other great initiatives come from Whole Grain Digital, a company founded by Vanita and Tom Greenwood in 2007. Tom has recently published an excellent book, Sustainable Web Design, from a book apart. I wanted to know how Venita and Tom got started so early in promoting a culture of sustainable web design.
1: Yeah, well, if I'm being honest, so when we started the business, which was 2007, we um, we were very much sort of moving into digital as a <laughs> as, as a panacea to environmental problems. So you know, Venita was an electronics engineer, and, and I was an industrial designer in a kind of you know traditional product design sense sort of physical things rather than digital things and we were both sort of you know really concerned about the the manufacture the use disposal of you know so much physical stuff and and really looking at digital as a potential solution to to that in in you know how can digital enable us to to do the things that we all want to do in life and um you know provide useful services, improve quality of life, whatever it might be, without needing to actually, you know, dig up the earth's resources and spew out pollution and, and and then throw waste into landfill sites. And so that's what really kind of started us down this track of being a digital agency and being focused on sustainability, you know, trying to do look at that in every aspect of the business. But because that was our focus, gradually over time, we sort of started asking, well, yeah, but what about the digital bit? Like, surely there must be an impact to that. And, you know, we originally naively kind of went in thinking that there wasn't really an impact to digital. That was part of the attraction. And everybody we asked over the years, you know, whenever we brought it up and sort of asked people who we thought might know about it, and they sort of said, oh, well, no, it's it's insignificant. Don't worry about it. It's almost nothing. And that's still, you know, still a case that with a lot in a lot of places today within our industry because it's not really talked about still. But gradually over time, we sort of picked away at it and started finding information that that showed that actually the impact of digital is really big. And and yes, there is a huge role for digital to help us kind of solve environmental problems and reduce impact relative to some things that were previously, you know, physical products and services. But But that doesn't mean that digit itself doesn't have an impact. I think it was around four or five years ago when I sort of found an article that was quite recent at the time that sort of was looking into the impact of of data centers specifically comparing that to the electricity consumption of the whole of the UK. That was sort of really a wake up call. I thought, hang on a minute. I mean, data centers are only a part of the puzzle and yet, you know, equivalent Energy consumption to sort of what the world's fifth or sixth biggest economy I mean that's absolutely insane, so yeah, that was sort of really how we got looking into this
0: very interesting, brought to your backgrounds you know from the the physically designed type of product uh, so to speak and 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 I think yeah that that you've summarized i think certainly the way I would have felt like I've been involved in the web since, since the mid nineties. And, and uh, I don't think I taught very much one way or another, but if I did think I, I, I would have taught, Hey, digital is great. Digital is sustainable. ebooks are much yeah. better than physical books. So, so, you know, that would have, and I, I would say that's anybody in, or or the most people in digital, that would be, their de facto taught if if they are to think about about it. So you say the the data center you're coming across that data center, and and then you think it oh, all is much more than data centers. And and the interesting thing I suppose is with with data centers is that been reading some articles recently that their electricity usage, even though their usage and expansion has grown very substantially, their the the quantity of electricity they're consuming has not increased very very much because they are quite energy efficient for what they're doing yeah uh, so to speak so you know the but it's a kind of what struck me when I was doing the research is that you know I saw all this stuff like from the 70s onwards that basically modern digital so to speak took off you know the there were mainframes in the seventies. It wasn't the eighties until the PC. But but computers really began to take off at the beginning of the seventies. What I noticed was as well that all the other really negative metrics took off as well: species extinction, tremendous extraction, et cetera. And and you know I wondered like, what is there a is there a relationship? You know, I, I thought, and I think yeah, yeah there is because you know those aisle wells those extract those machines Those without that computer modelling without that computer aided design without that without that data coming back we could n- have never built these extractive technologies in many ways digital became an accelerant very negative human behaviours that in, and of, in in and of itself it wasn't necessarily energy inefficient but i've often talked about over the years about in content. And I said, you know, before content, before the CMS, we used to have a shovel and now we got a digger. Look, <laughs> like, and that, you know, it, it may be a very efficient digger, but it's still, it's still allowing us to flood the, the space, you know, with, with, with all these other things. So I kind of, you see this hidden hand of digital or have you noticed that, or is that part of your thinking as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the thing that the digital is sort of pervasive, you know, in our society now, and it it can very much be used for really positive things, but I think you get the nail on the head when you said it's an accelerant of of consumption, you know, that it's it's an incredibly powerful tool both in allowing us to figure out how to do more things, you know, manufacture new technologies, extract more resources. But it's also an accelerant in enabling people and encouraging people to consume those resources you know through you know digital marketing and and e commerce it it just makes it so easy and for us to consume ever more and more and I think that's that is actually a big part of the debate that that isn't talked about that much that you know I think digital transformation is this sort of magical term that <laughs> is it sort of suggests that we'll turn everything digital and it will it'll solve all of our problems, yeah, and you know it, it can solve many problems, but not by default. you know I, I always say that digital is is kind of neutral in its it's kind of neutral in whether it's good or bad by default, whether it has a good or a bad impact is very much dependent on what we use it for. but the trouble is that we use it for both. We use it to solve real problems, you know social problems, environmental problems, but we also use it to create new problems. And I think in many ways, we use it more for the latter.
0: You, you've touched on a couple of profound things there in that talk, one which really has disturbed me in the last number of years and, you know, making things easy to use. I thought that was a kind of the holy grail, but you've articulated a kind of a, a potential dark side of it too. And the other, about the neutrality of of these tools. And, you know, I suppose, if if you because uh, what you say or well, what we both said about digital being an accelerant, something that accelerates, something that increases speed, is that necessarily neutral? Or you know, when we know the laws of physics, that beyond a certain speed, energy energy consumption really jumps at an exponential level. So, you know, the energy to Take a, spe- a rocket outside of the Earth's orbit is uh, is absolutely enormous. Well, there's various reasons, but you have to get you have to get tremendous speed and, and momentum to, to break through. And that once you go over certain speeds, the the energy consumption is enormous. And if an essence of digital is speed, then maybe it's not neutral. Maybe it's leaning on the side of high energy consumption.
1: Yeah, well, you may, you may well be right there. Because I mean, as I said, that I feel that, you know, we tend to use it a lot more for the latter in terms of more for things that cause destruction than solve it. And that may well be part of it because it's because its key property is speed. You know, that's what it does. It makes everything faster and easier. And by making things faster and easier, human nature is to consume more of it because it's easier for us to do so. So, yeah, I mean, in that sense, it's actually a pretty interesting question you're asking because, yeah, anything that makes it easier for humans to consume resources is likely to lead us to consume more resources. And, yeah, that's a conundrum, isn't it?
0: It, it is, It yeah. Like, these are these are uncomfortable, you know, things, or I find it uncomfortable to, like, the easy use, you know, that was, that's been my whole message or a key message of... Been all over the world <laughs> preaching that, and 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 then I began to read. Like some things, maybe they shouldn't be so easy, you know. Because I think, I think what digital has is that is that speed, but also that instability, kind of in it as well. That by its nature, it is, it morphs and changes, and it's. I I see about the instability. I think when you think of instability, and you think of my, I, I've got a physical book library. I've never had the urge to buy a copy of every book I have just in case my physical library goes on fire. Yeah. I say, well, if it goes on fire, it goes on fire. You know, you're just gonna to have to live with it, right? But I've got about 10 copies of my digital <laughs> so speak libraries. I've I've got them on hard multiple hard disks, I've got them on archives, I've got them, I've got them on Dropbox, I've got because of my paranoia that that digital is so unstable that yes. I must create multiple, multiple copies. So the so I think when you combine instability or, or this morphiness, you know, you, you, you all sorts of things like also that we don't think ahead. Nearly as much anymore. Like if you want to build a chair from some wood, you got to figure out what sort of wood, how much wood should you have. But with digital, we say, "Oh, we can always change it." Yeah. So we kind of just get stuck in, you know. So there, I think there are these characteristics of digital that lead to very wasteful type of beha- behaviors that don't seem to require much need for planning, so to speak, or 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 thoughtfulness or deep thought, certainly long-term thoughtfulness.
1: Yeah, definitely. And everything's so, I, th- I think distraction is another kind of key aspect of that because so much of the sort of the the software that we use day to day now, whether it's for work, you know, things like email and Slack or whether it's personal, you know, social media, so much of it is designed to to distract us and keep pulling us into what's popped up right now that it is very hard to actually have quiet time for contemplation and thought and planning the long term because everyone's minds are just constantly being pulled back into the immediate even if the immediate is completely trivial quite irrelevant it's nevertheless where we now tend to spend most of our most of our mental energy
0: I, yeah and i suppose it's recognizing these things and being aware of these traps, like, like it's like an addiction. You know, we can enjoy alcohol, have a good time, but we can become addicted. And that that sense of, as you say, whether it's on Twitter or, or or LinkedIn or Slack or whatever, of these little pings and these little notifications, they are, as you say, deliberately designed, like like Pavlov's dogs to Want us to hit that bell to get a reward,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think you know, again, what you were saying about the backups of backups of backups, (laughs) you know, that I think it's not just instability, it's sort of this, it's something that comes from, I think, the inherent nature of it being intangible, like you can't hold it. So, there's a part of you that doesn't really believe that it exists, you know, you can't feel like you trust it 100% because you've never held it in your hand. You've never seen it with your own eyes in a physical sense, like you've seen it on a screen, but you know that that's kind of, you know that's just a sort of a, a temporary picture of something. And so I think, yeah, there is this sort of inherent distrust of the reliability, even if it, you know, even if it is as reliable as having a paper copy that you might lose or or, or your dog might Eat or might catch on fire or get destroyed in a flood or whatever it is. You know, it might be in practice just as reliable, but it doesn't feel it, and so we end up creating backups and backups. And yeah, there's many, there's many different angles to it that I think make us create more and consume more, and it's a, it's sort of an ongoing cycle, really.
0: And is there any way, you know, is that an area you get into with your clients or? a kind of the behavioral part or have you thought about that area of how to, you know, because another thing connected with that is that not alone do we store, but we store what we don't need to store. You know, like like we we store stuff that if we had it physically, we'd throw in the bin. But we kind of keep it anyway, you'd never know. Or, you know, it's so easy to store it. You know, we don't have to think about making the decisions of you know, should I been this or, yeah. or or not? So, you know, we 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 keep way more, and we keep it in multiple places. Have you approached that as a company, or do you stay very much, you know, in in a in a space of design, of of digital design, or have you looked at behaviour, how we get good behaviour within a digital space?
1: I mean yes and no. So we are we do primarily stick within the realm of sort of design and development, you know, to the client's brief. I think there's there's various different ways that we sort of bring in some of those concepts. One is, you know, just in the design process in general about you know just the whole exploration of what the you know what the whole purpose of the project is about and what it's trying to encourage people to do. Because I think this this question inherently ties in with With the whole concept of you know user behavior and and user experience design and not just that but also like the inherent motive of a project which is (laughs) which is something that i think in itself needs to be questioned like what is it you know if we're if a website exists and somebody's paying money for it to exist then they want something out of that they want to have an impact on the world in some way or an impact on people in some way so i think starting from the absolute base of questioning what that is and whether that's something that you want to be involved in facilitating is is definitely something where we do get involved but then i think once we're into that process then yeah i mean to be honest generally we are in the mindset of enabling trying to trying to create the fastest path from somebody arriving to somebody achieving the desired goal and It's an interesting question as to whether that's always a good thing. I mean, I I certainly think from the content editing point of view, then it's an easier conversation around the kind of the dynamics of actually good housekeeping. And, you know, then that's a conversation that that can be had. It's not necessarily easy (laughs) to manage in the sense that, that clients are sort of, you know, they run their own websites day-to-day. You know They manage their own content. But it's certainly a conversation that's relatively intuitive to have and they can understand and see that there may be a benefit. Whether they feel it's worth their time is different. And I think one of the questions for us, but also for anybody that kind of builds content-managed websites for people, is how can you make the deletion process as easy as the creation <laughs> process? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I'll be honest with you, that's not something that we've really... Found a great answer to at the moment, because whenever we talk about it, we always find there's weird edge cases that mean that there's weird edge cases that mean that it's not always as simple as it looks, but for example, you know, we just did it the last week on a client's website, just ran a script that basically looked for looked for all of the pages that aren't referenced you know they're not linked to from anywhere else they're not linked to from a navigation or from another page to find things that maybe used to be used but are no longer so that we could delete them. So there is stuff like that, but yeah, it's very much, it's very much one of those secondary things. You know, it's not the, it's not the primary, it's not the primary thread of what we're doing. And, and part of that is simply because the primary thread of what we're doing is what, is what we're being paid to do. And I think this is where the whole kind of the, the economics of waste (laughs) sort of come in because, or, or the economics of consumption because people, inherently want to spend money on things that is gonna gonna get them something you know and that i don't mean get them something in a bad way it's sometimes getting something could be yeah. a good thing in sense you know it could be funding for a charity or something like that but but that kind of housekeeping thing is very much sort of more seen seen more as an, as an overhead i'd say
0: yeah it, it is definitely have you had any thoughts or projects you know you, you see the way now traceability is becoming a bigger issue in the physical world to do with food quality, but yeah. but also also sustainability and issues of you know you can do a map of everything that went into creating this T-shirt and how much CO2 it it created. A number of clothing companies are are beginning to do that. Maybe maybe not many, but some. And it's it's it, it, there's a movement happening. Have you ever tried that or? seen that happen in digital, that you can trace back how much effort went into this form, everything from the meetings to the sign-offs to the, you know, or, or this image or this, the total carbon that went into creating this new website. So we had 120 hours of meetings, we had boom, 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 we had blah, blah, blah. The total CO2 for this website was, or the total CO2 for this video was, or the you know, obviously made up. Have you seen any movement in that, or at any of? Because there's a kind of leading us into a little bit the website carbon calculator, but at a, you know, the, this broader, holistic picture of all the various things that go into, you know, getting a piece of content approved, et cetera, et cetera, and all all that goes into that. Because I think a lot of organisations don't realise how much effort goes into. 500 words of content
1: yeah absolutely i mean it's not so it is something we've discussed actually but it's not something that we've got to yet but i i did have an interesting chat with chris adams from the green web foundation because he was he was working on a sort of a a template of how this might be done from exactly the point of view that you're saying and so it's been on my mind since i had that conversation with him about how would this translate into the work that we do at hograin and i think it's one of those things where on the one hand it's not fundamentally difficult we already work out our company carbon emissions it's very easy to then work out like what that is per hour and then factor that in what's not so simple is the que- <laughs> the question of the question of billable versus non-billable hours in the sense that a client is directly paying for a certain amount of our time that's directly spent on their work and so and so quantifying the impact of that time and together, you know, with additional travel and so on, I think it would be quite easy. Where it gets becomes a more complex question is then how you factor in all the non-billable time. You know, the admin time. Mm. Um, pe- you know, members of staff who don't directly serve clients, but well, they're not directly working on clients' projects, but they are there to ensure the smooth running of the company and good service to the clients. And how do we factor that in? And I don't, as I said, I don't think it's fundamentally difficult. It's just it's a <laughs> it needs a bit of brain space to sit down and and work out exactly how to to sort of create a simple formula that would be representative that we could then scale, you know, for each piece of work.
0: And I think what you the other part of the jigsaw there is the client's time. Mm, like yes. like if we're looking at the total CO two emissions, like I, I was dealing with a client there about six months ago where they had a fifty person email cc discussing a hero shot like i mean uh, they shouldn't have been discussing it at all <laughs> you know it was a it was a it was an appalling hero shot that was totally irrelevant and it was a health uh, health environment and and uh they didn't need it. this they, they shouldn't have had this at all but there was 50 of them yeah on, on this email train going back and forth you know and you know so it's of course, it's your cost. You had the directly working, but oftentimes when you sometimes you, you you factor in the the management costs and on their side and their effort and and stuff like that, you know that that adds a fair bit to the equation as well.
1: Yeah, massively. And I think that's that's actually a lot harder to work out because you often don't know how much time they've really spent. You know, in that example, there's many people copied into an email, but you don't really know how many of them spent time looking at it or how much time. Exactly. And we've also had interesting cases where sometimes it feels like doing the right thing in terms of, you know, like environmental, being a sustainable business. Is great, but sometimes it can feel like there's an element of creative accounting, even even if un, unintentional, because you're never covering the full picture. So, for example, you know, we have a no-fly policy at Hograin, which means that we don't fly for business. And that, you know, that helps a lot in us reduce our emissions. But we've had a few occasions, not many, but we've had a few occasions where clients flew to see us. Um, <laughs> and then it feels like, ah, oh, well, <laughs> you know, what did we gain there? Probably what we gained is that we created a little bit of a barrier, which meant that, you know, probably on balance, there's a lot less flying happening for our projects than if we didn't have that policy. That's definitely true. But on those occasions where it happens that way round, that they say, okay, if you're not coming to us, we'll come to you. You know, it's great to see them in person. It's lovely. But but it does sort of, you know, it does sort yeah. of defeat the point in that sense.
0: Well, to, as you say, to an extent, but probably on balance, there's less flying, yeah. And as we know, nothing is ever even close to perfect. You know, we we do the best we can, and we learn as we go. You know, and we keep trying roughly and heading roughly in the right direction. Yeah. But you know, it's a great policy. It's you know, but but the law of unintended consequences sometimes can can occur. But I think on balance, there, as you've said, I think probably less, definitely less flying because of of that sort of thinking just in yeah. you know now the, the the area of you know cuz i've used your website calc- uh, carbon calculator many many times and it's a very powerful way of you know just expressing something ringing a bell or turning a light on or but the, the way its core figures I'd like you to explain that a bit because, you know, when as we're looking at these, we're talking about this traceability or total cost, you know, the, the people think, oh, the the actual cost of transferring the data is not that great, you know, etc. But there are far more things in the total cost or the total, you know, that, that contribute to that is connected with that gigabyte or or that amount that quantity of data. Maybe just to talk about that sort of the bigger picture of what's involved in a web page and, and, and its interlinked potential to create pollution.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean I think one of the one of the things that's important to state up front is that every every website is gonna be different in terms of like the the exact places that it's using resources and i think you know that's a challenge in itself just the fact that the web is so distributed that knowing the exact details of any specific website is always going to be an incredibly hard challenge even if it's your own website but especially if you're looking at other people's but nevertheless if you look at it kind of in a broad sense then yes you've got the data transfer but Data, even that you know some people look at just data transfer as like how much energy does it take to transfer a gigabyte of data over the internet but then even if you don't open it up much further the question is well how far are you transferring it you know are you transferring it on a kind of relatively small network from one node to another or are you transferring it over hundreds of thousands of miles crossing oceans that makes a difference in terms of the amount of energy that's used to get from to get from the data center to the end user who's who's looking at that and vice versa for any data that comes from the end user to go all the way back again to that data center but then that's just looking at the data transfer within the internet you know you've got the actual energy used within the data centers themselves which as we've talked about can be considerable and there's lots of things that you can do to reduce that energy consumption so some websites are going to use a lot more than others to achieve you know, relatively the same thing, but, you know, a big proportion of, of the, sort of the, the overall energy is used at that data center level. And then you've got, you know, that you've got the end user devices, which are using energy themselves and, and use more energy to process certain things, you know, you can tell when your device gets hot or the fan starts whirring on your computer, looking at a web page is because it's really making it work hard and your battery life decreases as a result. And then you've also got sort of local networks sort of, which are sort of, once it reaches your home or your office or, you know, wherever you might be at an airport or train station or whatever, you've got those local networks with the local, you know, Wi-Fi hubs and routers and so on, which are wearing away 24 hours a day using energy. So there's lots of different places beyond just that kind of that very simplistic starting point of like how much energy does it take to make a gigabyte of data go over a wire? Once you expand your view out, you know there's lots of different places that not only are there other places where the energy is being used, but there's lots of different variables that can impact whether that's a lot or a little. And then you can go even further, <laughs> which is actually looking at you know how much energy does it take to, to build this infrastructure and and build the the hardware that's actually running the internet. And I think that's something that 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 again is something that really isn't talked about enough because i mean you know the the carbon footprint of a server itself is pretty pretty huge and you know data centers you know could be replacing the servers every 3 to 4 years in in a lot of cases and yes you know they'll do a lot of work in that time but nevertheless you know that's a lot of computers that are basically being manufactured Every few years, we're having to manufacture more, and then at the end of life, they're basically just getting bin in many cases shredded. So, even if they still work, um, <laughs> which is even more painful. <laughs> so, yeah. why
0: do they do do they do that for security reasons? Or
1: it's a mixture. So part of it's for security. So I was talking to somebody recently who was talking about HSBC, and um, you know they're they're shredding you know thousands of Thousands of hard drives a week, but in terms of yeah, in terms of the servers, it's partly, I think it's partly security, but it's mainly performance, in the sense and reliability. So once they get to a point where the warranty has expired, and especially if there's a sort of a performance gain in the in the new versions, then often they'll just be replaced, even if there's nothing wrong with them, because you know uptime is kind of the name of the game in the hosting industry. So having things out of warranty, you don't want thousands or hundreds of thousands of servers out of warranty running in your data centers because it's sort of, from a business point of view, could be seen as you know an accident waiting to happen. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's scary. Isn't it? I mean, that's connected with the 50, 50 million tons of e-waste we're creating a year. Mm. And as you indicated, and as I kind of knew it to some degree, but hadn't really thought about in the data center context that a lot of these are perfectly good machines that are you being deliberately just shredded.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: When they could be put to good use in some other environment, as as in schools or universities or, or whatever. And and yeah, oh that's I, another ball game, isn't it?
1: It is. I mean I was talking to tech buyer recently who are a company that refurbishes hardware from data centers and they're think they're pretty ahead of the game in terms of the industry but still they refurbish you know a very tiny percentage of the industry's waste but you know they were explaining to me how nearly everything that's coming out of these data centers is is either most of it is perfectly usable and the stuff that's not is actually very easy to repair you know they they can do it profitably and the failure rate they told me, you know, according to their own tests, the failure rate on the refurbished machines is actually lower than on the brand new machines, which is, <laughs> which is bizarre. But you know, so this whole idea of like, oh, we don't want machines that are out of warranty, is kind of crazy. And apparently, the reason that the failure rate is so low is because when they refurbish them, they test every single key component of every single machine. Whereas when they manufacture the brand new ones, you know, the HP factory or the Dell factory or whatever it is, often the same factory with different stickers on them. They're batch testing, you know, so that, you know, they may maybe every 20th machine or 10th machine that's coming off the production line is, is getting run through a few tests. And they're saying, yeah, that's fine. But the rest of them actually have never been tested. Whereas when they're refurbished, because they've got to make sure it works in order to resell it, which is weird that they can that it's profitable to make a business out of refurbishment with a higher more rigorous yeah. level of testing than the original manufacturers it it is very very strange
0: but isn't it isn't it this intense culture of waste that, that the tech industry is built on like that it it its whole economics is waste you know from planned obsolescence but I mean that's what apple and samsung are are, are built on is planned obsolescence. You know, yeah. they're you know finding ways to get you to change your phone every two years. It there is this really insidious underbelly of the economics of waste yeah. in in tech.
1: Well, this is it. You know that people you know people like Hewlett Packard, for example, they don't have a business. They haven't developed a business model in refurbishment of servers for data centers. Their business model is selling you the servers in the first place. So if they give you a three or four year warranty and they've designed the servers so that some component will probably fail between the (laughs) fourth and fifth year. (laughs) You know, you only need one you only need one single point of failure. Then then it makes sense that people would think, yeah, okay, when the warranty's up, we'll replace them with brand new ones. But but that's it's terrible from an environmental point of view and the only winner is the manufacturer really i mean even the data centers themselves would be better served by a business model that provided them with long term reliability
0: yeah and that as you as you say the then there's a larger architecture of, of the internet one of the things you were talking about there about data transfer you were saying you mentioned wire and of course the, the mechanism by which we transfer the data has a has a major Impact on the energy consumption, if we go to the extreme cases now of of five g where it looks it looks like they'll have to set up ten to thirty times the amount of base stations that they had for four g or three g to allow five g to achieve these sorts of speeds that it's claiming it will achieve, like all all of this will require a massive supra infrastructure you know to get us what
1: <laughs> <laughs> well that's it and it's not just the energy of powering those base stations it's the actual the environmental impact of manufacturing them and you know digging up the roads and installing them and the you know the concrete for the foundations of those poles that they're going in you know it's it all of this matters when you scale it over the whole world
0: so anything that that i suppose begins to help identify or isolate this 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 broad because it is the you know i bought it for 20 years that digital was green i think digital has done a fantastic job of of hiding its underbelly yeah you know or hiding all this other stuff that happens underneath and like as i was saying about say fast fashion which is an extraordinarily damaging nasty industry that it couldn't exist without instagram yeah I, certainly to the extent, nor could it exist without the MacBook because you can't do 24 seasons with pencil and paper. You yeah. know, many many times, like we've gone from about two seasons a year in fashion to 24 in in some environments in, in about 25 years. And the only way you can do that is with computers and networks and, you know, and being able to modify a design within... A day, blah blah blah, make it look that yeah, different. Absolutely,
1: thing. and to be able to have teams, you know, in different places around the world that are collaborating on making that happen, you know, with people in sort of Bangladesh, you know, manufacturing, and the people doing the design might be in the US or the UK or somewhere completely different, and sort of making those design changes at such a pace, which we just wouldn't be possible in the past. You know, you'd have had to have prepared your designs and package them up and in a in a big in a big roll of paper <laughs> in a tube cup or tube and send it up to Bangladesh for them to examine yeah. and and then wait for them to send you some feedback. Um, whereas now it's just sort of almost real time.
0: Exactly. And but let's say we're coming coming near the end. Let's let's end more positively. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the you know, 'cause w- w- when you're giving guidance or when you're giving like I was talking to a group of banks this morning in in Norway, a kind of more social, small, smaller banks out in, in out in the countryside, who were coming together in a kind of collaborative effort to reduce waste in in a general in a general sense, but also interested in the digital space, and and uh, they were saying, "Whoa, God, we hadn't thought about this," <laughs> and you know, and and then they said, "You know, where do you start?" Yeah. If somebody's coming to you and saying, "You know in general, Tom, how do we become a more sustainable digital environment as as an organization? Where do we start what's the What's the first things we should really look at look at doing uh, if we want to reduce the waste and and just 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 do better for the for for life and for the planet and for for general sustainability." Where would you point them to?
1: Sure. I mean, I guess there's sort of, there's two obvious places just from my own kind of where I sit. I mean, one of them is websites from the point of view of, you know, that's what we do. Hence I, I I know it best. And that's why I'd point people there. But I think, you know, if, especially if you're in an organization that has, that uses the web heavily and has a high traffic, then, you know, there's a, there's a real tangible impact there. And it's, it's a single thing that you can focus on and make a meaningful difference which i think is why it's a good place to start but i think the other the other obvious one is is email because every organisation is using email prolifically and and i think that there's an opportunity there to not just sort of have an environmental benefit by using email in a more considered way but i think that that can also help organizations function better because I think email is a massive distraction and it yeah yeah it's great that we can all communicate you know with each other often over long distances especially this year with the whole pandemic and so on but but actually I think it gets in the way of of doing deep and meaningful work a lot of the time and so I think it's really worth from an organizational culture point of view trying to look at like okay how can we use email more mindfully and I think that has a a human benefit, a uh, organisational benefit, and a uh, environmental benefit.
0: Absolutely. So uh, I'm just going to backtrack there a little bit first. So going, so I'm going to come back to email now in a minute. But the web. So the website. So what would you? Use, so if they say, okay, we want to focus on a website. What what should it be? What is it? Average web page weight? Is it? Should you be looking at a specific target of? average weight or download time or should we be looking at having a good review process to get rid of all content what would be a couple of really starters in that that typically websites are not doing yeah that if they started doing would have would have you know some real tangible benefits yeah
1: well I think exactly as you said I think looking at the um, looking at the transfer size of of your web pages is a really good starting point just to kind of understand where you are like the the median for the web now is somewhere around three megabytes for a, for a web page, which is which is huge when you think about it kind of in a historical context, you know a floppy disk for anybody <laughs> for anybody old enough to remember them was I think one.4 megabytes, and you know you could fit a whole software program sometimes multiple. Multiple exactly. games accounting on one floppy disk, you know?
0: Exactly. I had, I remember the 7-inch flat, we had, for companies, the first company I worked with, our, our entire accounting system was on... Well, <laughs> right, all, there you go. ...all the accounts. Like,
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it, and I think things like that are important to highlight just how much a megabyte is in terms of the potential of what you can do with it. And, and therefore, three megabytes for like the median web pages is, is really... Is really huge because most web pages are not doing that much, you know. They're they're just text and a few images on a page.
0: Could you give us an example of And you don't have to say a cli- You could say client yeah. X. So client X came to us and their median size was three megabytes or four megabytes. And after working with us, we got it down to X, and it just worked. And it worked just as well. Is there any rough? You don't need to name a client, but say to give a sense of how much improvement is actually in there without giving up anything in relation to, you know, it still looked pretty much the same site, so to speak. Would you have any any sort of, that can give a sense of, oh, I should be trying to get it down to, or I could easily look to get a megabyte off it, or any sort of guidance there in the sense of?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, as a general rule, you could, (laughs) <laughs> almost no matter what you're doing unless you've got like you know unless you need to have some sort of you know unless you need to have some sort of video stream or something which you know maybe there's a use case where you do but for a typical web page there's no there's no good reason why it shouldn't be under a megabyte i think that's a good starting point in many cases you know it's relatively easy to get it down to sort of 5 or 600 kilobytes and if you really really try you can create you know pretty attractive Web pages that function really well for under a hundred kilobytes. I think the smallest we've ever done was 25, something like that. And you know, there's reasons why you know, from a commercial point of view, that many people might need a bit more than that. But you could create a good web page for 100 kilobytes, and I, and I think that's really important to remember. What starts happening is it's, it's the invisible extras that often then cause things to start creeping you know it's people you might create you might create a great website and it's like you know 99 kilobytes and then but then what can happen is that you then add various tracking scripts to the page and in each tracking script you know they vary in size but you could easily end up with like you know 500 kilobytes of tracking scripts if you're Mm. not careful which you know, it's, it's crazy. We were looking at a site last week for somebody and they were asking us, they'd done loads of stuff in-house with a little bit of guidance from us up front. They'd done loads of stuff in-house to try and make their web pages more efficient. And they'd they'd worked with the design team and the development team to try and improve the efficiency. And they'd done a really nice job. And they they came back and they were like, but it's still, you know, our page weight is still so high. And... We don't understand why and we had a quick look and we said well it's because your cms is adding 1.2 megabytes of tracking scripts doesn't matter what you do it's like that's <laughs> just it's like you it's built into your cms and um but these tracking scripts are always added and you know so there's there are things like that that really can trip trip people up
0: and here's the thing as well is it, you know i don't know whether it's your experience but my experience most of this tracking is useless. Like it's not, yeah. the, the actual decisions that get made based on the collected data of this quote unquote tracking rarely lead to anything positive. Like mo- they're, they're collecting all this stuff, nine out of 10 organizations I deal with. And they either don't know how to use the data or they do stupid things to kind of increase weird metrics, you know, that they've somehow convinced themselves about engagement or stuff like that or in, in the process that that if anything, the data that often comes back from this tracking leads to counterproductive behavior within the organization rather than positive behavior. But, the, the, but broadly speaking, a lot of this tracking is of no real benefit.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have a sort of... Perhaps a slightly unpopular view <laughs> that ninety percent that of websites don't need Google analytics
0: exactly well, I totally agree with i hundred I, percent I, like i I've, I've been looking at analytics since nineteen ninety seven ninety eight web trends, etc, and I don't know how many meetings I've been in over the years, either with websites I was responsible for, or whatever, where people sat around trying to look intelligent and trying to say intelligent things on Monday morning about the web metrics. And really, it being an exercise in bullshit of, yeah, oh, I see, I see the bounce rate has gone up by 3% or this or that or the other. And that actually meaningless, warbly garbage, a kind of, that really, that exactly the 90% of websites don't need this. You don't need Google Analytics because there's nothing you're going to do different next
1: week. Well, that's it. I mean, I would say, well, I'm pretty sure every single one of our clients' websites has analytics on it, whether it's Google Analytics or something or an alternative. And some of them look at their analytics. Some of them do something with it. But there's a lot that don't. But if you would have the conversation with them around, well, maybe we should remove it. It never, it never succeeds because there's always this fear of, but what if we need the data? You know, it's, it's sort of a, a just-in-case kind of thing. Well, you know, shouldn't we have it just in case we need it for something? Fear of missing out, really.
0: If you're interested in these sorts of ideas, please check out my book, Worldwide Waste, at jerrymcgovern.com. To hear other interesting podcasts, please visit This is hcd.com.